Welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people in the autism community who help teens and adults with autism become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach, and I'm doing good this on this uh, cold Cleveland morning uh, as I have a hot cup of coffee with me, so I'm ready to go. Um, I wanted to first start off by thanking everyone for listening to our first episode and the wonderful feedback we received. It is truly appreciated. On today's episode, we are going to talk about social security disability and, and how it really can be so impactful for those without employment or with inc- inconsistent employment, employment and, and be a supplemental income. Did you know that each year approximately 33% or so of those that file for Social Security Disability actually win those claims? So today we are going to discuss this and much, much more with attorney Andrew November of Liner Legal, who found his calling and life's passion in disability litigation. Andrew received his bachelor's degree from the University of Cincinnati in criminal justice and founded the first criminal justice honor society at the university. Following graduation, Andrew went on to receive his law degree from Case Western University. In addition to fighting for the rights of others, Andrew is conversational in American Sign Language but is working continuously to become more fluent. Andrew is completely taught by his wife, Carrie. Carrie, born profoundly deaf, earned a master's degree in teaching American Sign Language from Columbia University in New York. We hope you enjoy today's interview. So, Andrew, you are a unique um, guest because you are the only person that I'm interviewing that went to uh, high school with my sister-in-law. Yeah, it's definitely small-town Cleveland. Uh, as we were joking before, you can be anonymous in this city, but when you go looking, you certainly find a lot of connections. And uh, 
it's nice to, to know your family on a professional level now, and we're yeah. sitting in this room together. Yes, that's great. So in doing research for this podcast, the first thing that really jumped out to me and that impacted me was why you wanted to study criminal law. Can you share that story with our listeners? Sure. You know, it was kind of a, a, two, a two-fold situation. On my website, I discuss uh, being a witness to a very violent crime uh, very early in my college career as a freshman. Uh, at the University of Cincinnati, it was a city atmosphere. I came from the suburbs, so you know it was a, it was an awakening, but an awakening to reality, and, and sometimes reality can just be tragic. And there was a crime, uh, a murder that occurred outside of a restaurant, and I had uh, been at the restaurant and witnessed it, and there was also an off-duty police officer. Uh, at the restaurant, full full uniform, um, but off duty. I didn't know that at the time, and I had urged him to get help, and he basically told me it was none of his business, and there was no police there, and this man lay dying outside, and we kind of cut to the chase. I was arrested, and I was arrested for disorderly conduct, uh, and the officer had written on the police report that I was causing a riot, which, you know, maybe I, <laughs> I, I was, but a riot to get his attention, as this guy literally died uh, a few feet away. Varian Mines was his name, which I, I learned later, but the charges were ultimately dropped, and the officer, I, I wasn't sure if he was terminated or resigned, but, uh, you know, about a year after, he uh, was no longer on the police force, and I was an undeclared freshman at the time, and you know, it really kind of gave me insight into the, the criminal justice world. You know, I got thrown into the court system immediately, and yeah. we could do 60 minutes of a podcast on this, but, you know, I didn't have a major, but I knew I wanted to be involved in law, and, you know, it clicked. The moment I got into that program, uh, it, was meant, it was meant to be. So at that point, then you changed your uh, major to criminal justice? I, I I was roughly undecided, and I would be lying if I didn't add that criminal justice was also the only major that didn't have a foreign language or a math requirement. Uh, I was never a great student. I, I struggled in school. I had a lot of um, educational difficulties growing up. I had an IEP and a 504 plan, hmm. and uh, I don't think I got the best education at Orange. I spent a lot of time in the hallways. You know, I, I don't think they knew how to deal with me and it wasn't because I didn't have the intellect it was because I didn't have the focus and even though I described that situation with the police and all that criminal justice was the only thing to click with me I, I went from being the worst student barely graduating from orange getting into Cincinnati on a probationary basis to being top of my class I founded their criminal justice honor society my senior year there I went from being the hated student to be in the teacher's pet, you know, it was really an amazing experience to be like, wow, I'm good at school. It, it huh. just clicked with me, reading cases, reading the law, it just, it, it clicked with me and it, it still clicks with me today. Was part of it, like, you found something you became passionate about and it just kind of helped you focus at all? It, absolutely, that's what I think it is. Um, I, I used to have a friend that worked in the Montessori school system and she would describe that to me, and I think, looking back, I would have really done well in that school system because instead mm -hmm. of sending the kids like me into the hallway, they find what they're good at. You right. know, they give them little jobs, and, you know, I think that's what I 
I didn't have in the public school system. But when you get to choose your major and, and you can excel at it, you want to become that great student. I was, uh, I was a tutor at one point for the college athletes at the University of Cincinnati, which was very cool in and of itself. But here, here was me, Andrew November, that bad student from Orange, tutoring other students <laughs> in, the, in the class. So That's it, amazing. Yeah, it really was. So then following graduation with your degree in criminal justice um, from the University of Cincinnati, um, you went to get your law degree at uh, Case Western. What, what made you want to focus on disability law? Sure. Well, I should add that my first stop before Case Western was actually the University of Detroit Mercy. Hmm. Um, I actually went there for my first year of law school. And that kind of dovetails from, my, from the first question I answered. Um, being that I uh, didn't have a great foundation in my education, I always struggled with standardized testing. And I really struggled on the LSAT. Um, I don't think I ever learned good test-taking scores. I don't even remember what my SAT was. I'm sure it was terrible. And the fact that I don't even remember what the score was <laughs> probably says something. I don't even think I took the ACT. But I had really good grades. I had been on Dean's List, I think, for the last two to three years of college. Freshman year was not so great. But, you know, once I got into my major, I, I don't think I was ever not on Dean's List. But that wasn't enough to get into law school. I got rejected by Cleveland State and Case Western when I was at UC. I got rejected for UC's law school. I had a very low LSAT, but Detroit Mercy gave me a chance. And I rocked it out there. I did really, really well my first year. Again, I continued to click, and I was fortunate enough to transfer to Case Western. So that brought me to Case Western. But to answer your question um, about disability law, I'll be very honest again, something that I fell into. I didn't have a, a passion to represent individuals with disability. I didn't know anything about it. The reason why I ended up in this line of work was because, if you recall, I graduated in 2009, and if you recall what was going on in 2009, the economy had tanked. Yeah. There were no jobs. I think my year, my third year, was the only year that they didn't handle on-campus interviews, which is a, is a hallmark of the legal uh, recruiting process where the employers, the law firms, actually come to the school and they set up shop and interview students there. My year, they didn't even have that. I was a middle, I did very well my first year at Detroit Mercy. I did okay at Case Western. I think I was more into being happy that I was back in Cleveland and probably a little too much socializing and too much working. And I worked from the moment I got back to Cleveland. I was very much more interested in practicing law than learning the, <laughs> the you know, the uh, the Constitution uh, and the Federalist Papers. Doing. Yeah, yeah doing. and I wanted yeah. I wanted to be out there. I got yeah. a job right away, and you know the job allowed me to hit the hit the ground running. But you know, with having just average grades getting a job was hard but uh, my first job was at Balin Law and they gave again someone giving me a chance to, to prove myself. Hmm, that, that's great. So one of the biggest areas that um, autism personal coach are, with our clients is independent living. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly a big part of independent living is having money to do so. S supplemental security income and social security disability insurance come into play. For those that may be listening who may not know what those are, can you define each of those programs? Yeah, that is uh, one of my favorite topics to speak on because mm -hmm. not knowing the programs can cause catastrophic misunderstandings. I've spent so much time 
speaking just about I this morning I spoke at Baldwin Wallace, you know, and I spent so much time just speaking on what the programs are. So I I'm glad that you asked that question because people need to know what benefits they're receiving because that's going to dictate a lot of the rules. So when people talk about social security disability, being on social security, being on disability, they're talking about two programs and you actually correctly identified them. Uh, you said their names perfectly. Uh, so the first one is Social Security Disability Insurance, also known as SSDI, Disability, or Title II. You'll hear those, those acronyms or those uh, nicknames for that program. The other program you're going to hear about is Supplemental Security Income, typically called SSI or Title 16. The word title refers to uh, the place in the law of the Social Security Act, a particular title. They're both benefits that are paid to individuals who are found to be under a disability. However, the way you qualify for them, non-medically speaking, that's where they differ. And non-medical means what you have to do to be eligible for it, totally ignoring your medical condition. So the first one, SSDI, or Title II benefits, that's based on work history. What I mean by that is when people are working, they're paying Social Security taxes, and those taxes get paid into trust funds that do two things. One, they insure us for retirement benefits for when we reach full retirement age, but they also get paid into the trust fund for disability insurance. Generally, for individuals over the age of 31 to qualify for those SSDI benefits, you have to have worked at least 10 years in your life. And you also have to be presently insured too. So that 10 year, that's called fully insured. Then you have to be what's called presently insured, which means you have to have worked five out of the last 10 years. That's a common issue with people. I, I, I always tell people, pay attention to that. Call me. Call Social Security. I can usually figure that out in a second if you're insured for those benefits. So those are your Social Security Disability Insurance benefits. Again, it's based on your work history. The amount of money you receive is based on your work history, too. If you're not insured you're not out of luck. You might be entitled to SSI benefits. SSI is very similar to a welfare program. And I call it a welfare program because it's not based on work history, it's based on financial need. So they look at things called income and resources. Resources are the things you have, your bank accounts, your home, your second home, your car, your cars. Typically, a car and a home is excluded. However, you cannot have more than $2,000 in resources if you're a single person or $3,000 in resources if you're married. If you exceed those, you can't get SSI. Um, those numbers are ridiculously low. They, I think they were last mm -hmm. updated in 1974. And tell me, $2,000 had a lot more buying power in 74 than it does today in 2018. Yeah. Um, SSI, the amount of money you get, is not based on your work history. Rather, it's based on the amount of money the government sets. In 2018, it's $750 a month. So that are, those are the two types of benefits. However, situations will arise, and maybe we're going to talk about this in a moment, but depending on what benefit you're getting, it depends what rules apply. So it is extremely important to know what you're getting. You can call Social Security and ask, Am I getting SSDI? Am I getting SSI? Always know that before you start asking the other more nuanced questions. And 
what are the eligibility standards for each of these programs? In, in terms of disability? Yeah. Okay, so we talked about the non-medical. Right. Um, that was easy. Well, not easy at all, but, you know, I, th I think we're clear on that. The disability standard is the same for both. Um, if you wanted to sum up what the standard of disability is in a few words, it, it's, it's the inability to work. Of course, it's a lot more detailed than that, but the bottom line of disability is you're showing that you can't work due to a mental or physical or combination of mental and physical impairments that mm -hmm. prevent you from being able to work eight hours a day, five days a week. I often tell people, and I'm going to contradict myself on this sentence after I say it, but I say that Social Security is not an agency of diagnosis. And what I mean by that is sometimes people come into my office and they say, I'm here because of my back pain. Or they'll say, why are we not talking about my bipolar disorder? You're only talking about my depression. And I say, no, we're not talking about those conditions. We're talking about the functional limitations you have from those conditions. I, I, I won't say I don't care if it's depression, I don't care if it's bipolar, that's not what I mean. It means I want to know what functional limitations you're dealing with that'll impact your ability to work eight hours a day, five days a week. Now, are you ready for me to contradict myself with what I just said? Let's go for it. Okay, Social Security can totally be an agency of diagnosis. Now, if you have certain medical conditions, you might be automatically entitled to disability just by virtue of having a specific condition of a specific severity. Social Security has a book called The Listings. It's 14 chapters long, and each chapter deals with a different body system. There's a mental health chapter, chapter 12, and it does have a listing for autism. If your condition meets it specifically, you're automatically disabled. So there's no focus on whether you can work or not. There's some conditions that are called compassionate allowances. You know, if you have metastatic cancer, you're going to be found disabled automatically. Um, if you have uh, ALS, you know, conditions like that. Mm -hmm. um, if you have depression that's so severe that you're, you know, you're being hospitalized on a regular basis or you're not getting out of bed, things like that, you'll meet them. The vast majority of people don't meet those listings, but that's okay. We'll go into the full analysis and show that because of the functional limitations, the person's unable to work. Mm -hmm. So I kind of contradicted myself, but I, I think I made that No, that makes clear. a lot of sense. Yeah. So... We've heard from many adults with autism that they're hesitant to apply for Social Security because they feel there's a negative stigma on them, that they're labeled as lazy because they have Social Security. Do you think this stigma prevents many people who need Social Security for applying for these important benefits? Unfortunately, it does. Uh, I've been seeing that since day one, not just with people with autism or um, other conditions. I, I, I see it with, you know, I used to see it a lot with what I call our um, baby boomers. You know, these are the older generation that never saw a doctor to pick yourself up by the bootstrap generation, you know, pre-affordable care act. These people never had treatment, probably didn't even have medical insurance, and they never treated. And it can make the cases very tough because suddenly they deal they have these conditions and there's no medical records um i i often tell people they have to check their pride at the door when we walk in the courtroom 
because if we go to court and we go to a hearing, it's not a fun day. It's a very different day. We're not talking about the good things. We're talking about your difficulties. It's very vulnerable. You know, it's very humbling. It's very tough. I sometimes hate my job. Sometimes when I'm sitting in court and looking at someone in their eye and having to ask them about the worst aspects of their life, and they're telling a room full of strangers, I cringe on the inside. I know I'm doing it for their benefit, and life is going to be a lot easier when these benefits start for them, but it's terrible. I mean, look at the society that we live in with Facebook and Instagram where we're showing the best part of ourselves, and here we are, you know, with the social security process, talking about the worst things, talking about maybe not showering for a couple days, Mm -hmm. hoarding inside your house. Not having any social life. Yeah. I mean, it, it's terrible. And the judgment that comes with that. And the judgment that comes with that. But, you know, that's what our, our office personally prides itself on is we try to understand that you're stressed out. You know, I think we're very relaxed with our clients because we understand that our clients are scared. They're vulnerable. We provide in-home appointments. My partner does exclusively in-home appointments mm-hmm. because... He understands that people might want to leave. I, I've met some of your clients in right. restaurants. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's tough. And I can't force people to check their pride at the door or get over their stigma. But all I can remind people is that Social Security is a safety net. I love the word safety net because I think it embodies what this program was designed for in the New Deal by FDR. You know, the, and I know the disability came many years later. But, you know, disability was a segue of the original intention, and that was to prevent people from living on the streets. Right. A lot of people with autism that I've met usually have great parents that have provided them a lot of help growing up, and they usually end up in my office because mom and dad are kind of scared about what's going to happen when we're not here. What can we do to make sure our son or daughter is taken care of? And that's why I say yes. This is a safety net. Mm-hmm. If we go through the steps, we can establish that net, and we can guarantee that income stream and possible health benefits to come in right. and you know, just prevent an individual from having income and housing insecurity. Right. Now, for those that do apply, I read that approximately 65 to 70% of initial claims are denied. Mm-hmm. Are there any consistent variables you see in those 30% of cases for individuals that do get approved? Sure, and, you know, I, I remind everyone that um, that number is shocking. Um, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of truth behind that number, but, you know, we can break it down and remember That number counts every application, the partially completed ones, the ones that are from people that are clearly not disabled. Our our numbers are higher here. Uh, I can't exactly talk about it too much because there's ethical rules that prevent me from talking about our success rates because then it would give people the impression, oh, if we go with liner legal, we have this percent of chance. So I I get those ethical rules. But yeah, the, the numbers are higher than they should be. We see a lot of cases that that lose at the initial level. Um, Initial applications are tough. You don't get a hearing. You don't really get to see your adjudicator face-to-face. You're really just getting judged by your medical records. But there are ways to have a good application. I encourage people to talk to their doctors, to their therapists, 
to their community, support individuals like yourself, and get your ducks in a row before you file. Get opinion letters from your doctor. See if your doctors will support your case. Uh, make sure you're treating. You know, we need evidence. The, the law says we need evidence. You need to have what's called a medically determinable impairment. That's a legal phrase. It means there must be objective evidence showing that there is a, there is a medical condition that would impact your ability to work. Have a completed application. I tell people to speak to their lawyer before. I mean, people come into my office all the time with denials, and I can spot it within three seconds of why they were denied. And I said, you know, I probably could have fixed this for you. And it's not their fault. They didn't know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, it, it, there are ways to have a better application, and it, it's being prepared. You obviously have quite a bit of experience with Social Security cases. I, I read that you've litigated approximately 2,000 of these types of cases. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest challenges in winning these cases? Well, we have a very rough climate here in Cleveland with our judges. Um, this is not my opinion. This is all published data. You can okay. Google the words ALJ disposition data and you'll get a nice little searchable website provided by the government. Search for Cleveland within that website and you'll see that we have some of the uh, lowest paying judges in the country. I don't know why that is. Um, I Again, I do think my office statistics are higher because uh, those numbers include people that are not represented, um, people that are probably represented by not the most competent attorneys, uh, people that are clearly we would never have taken. You know, we don't take cases that, you know, we don't believe that the definition of disability is met. But, um, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lack of sympathy for individuals with disabilities. I still think there's a pick yourself up by a bootstraps mentality out there. I, I think that's one of the worst mentalities because some people don't have bootstraps to even pick themselves up by. Mm -hmm. Some people are dealt rough cards. I think a lot of people uh, and what they can do depends on the zip code they were born in. Um, I think people have medical conditions that prevent them from being able to work and you know, it's us having to convince the judge, and we do that by having a solid case record filled with opinion evidence, filled with testimony that shows prior work attempts, if any. But it's it's a tough fight against uh, often judges who are not so sympathetic. Hmm. So for those that eventually get Social Security... I see them constantly worried about the mon amount of money in their checking accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, they seem to be afraid that there's too much money and they are very anxious about their Social Security being taken away from them. Um, I know some of these people have open stable accounts to deal with this issue. What exactly is a stable account and how is this type of account helpful to people with disabilities? Sure. So before I answer the, the specific question about stable, um, I, I do want to go back to my earlier point that it's important to know what benefit you're getting, SSDI or SSI or both. If you're getting SSDI, we don't even need to address, don't listen to this question. Because with SSDI, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Mm -hmm. SSDI is not a welfare-based program. It's based on your work history. You can have a million dollars in your bank account and still receive disability benefits. You can't have income from work coming in, 
but your question is directly asking me about resources. So yes. remember, you know, if you're working, that'll impact. I, I do want to make this clear. If you're working, that'll impact SSDI or SSI because those are earnings. Those are earnings from work. Earnings and income, earnings income, I'm kind of using those interchangeably, is very different than resources. Resources um, is the... is the stuff you have, the money you have, the income you have in your account. Um, so what the stable account is, it's actually very new in Ohio. I think it's only been a couple years. Uh, it's actually a very progressive uh, idea for a state that I consider to be very not progressive. <laughs> uh, credit Josh Mandel, our, our treasurer, uh, who I, I disagree with but about many things, but I, he was a champion of the, the stable account, and I think it's proven to be so great for so many individuals with disabilities. It's an account uh, for individuals who have a disability, who can verify they have a disability, I believe beginning before the age of 24 or 22, um, or in their 20s. Uh, and uh, you can contribute up to, I think, $14,000 per year into the account, and it's a way to uh, contribute into an account so you can still be eligible for SSI. Uh, I, I can definitely take questions from people if they have it. We work with a lot of attorneys who can assist in setting them up, and often people can set them up, set them up on their own. What's the process for opening up this type of account? Uh, you can go right to uh, to the website. You know, I would just Google Stable Account Ohio, and that'll direct you to it. There are going to be questions that you might want to consult an attorney with. Hmm. Um, so I wouldn't recommend doing it on your own every time. But it's definitely something that you could do on your own. But it, it, it is a great tool for people who are trying to get SSI but have some resources that, uh, you know, could be put into a, a stable account. Mm -hmm. and, and for those that may want to know about your very important services, how do they go about getting in contact with you? Sure. We are um, available electronically or by phone the old-fashioned way. Our phone number is 216-282-1773. The easiest way and the fastest way to get in touch with us is by going to our website at linerlegal.com. That's L-I-N-E-R-L-E-G-A-L.com. Uh, you can send us messages through the website. Uh, we also have an app that you can download from the website where you can contact us directly through our app. And if you become a client, you can continue to update us through the app. We try to make this as easy as possible for our clients we're all over social media find us on facebook at liner legal send us a message there uh we try to be as accept accessible as possible you will find a way to get in touch with us and you got a monthly newsletter right yeah and you'll get our <laughs> monthly newsletter we put out a lot of content stuff that mm -hmm. we find fun but also informative we network with a lot of uh, doctors and professionals, including uh, Doug here, who was a star in our, our newsletter a few <laughs> months ago. Um, but yeah, we, we put out a lot of fun stuff about the things that are going on in the community because you have to have fun too. We talked yeah. about a lot of serious stuff, but it's important for everyone to try to find things that bring them uh, joy in the community. Yeah. Well, thanks, Andrew, for educating myself and our listeners today. Yeah, this is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. It's always great to spend time with Andrew because I'm always learning something new from him. So often, teens and adults with autism struggle with anxiety and as a result don't have success in their lives. Autism Personal Coach is a unique service 
in that we help individuals with autism by working on meaningful and individualized goals in the setting in which they'll be used so their anxiety is greatly reduced. And as a result, they become more independent and successful. To get an autism personal coach for a loved one or yourself, it's very easy. All you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On next week's episode, we will be joined by Pittsburgh's own Kathy Hughes. Kathy will share her dramatic entrance into the autism community and discuss the importance for people with autism developing community. Talk to you then.